Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. today occurred in the year 1932 and as always I'd like to share with you some other events that happened that year. On March the 14th George Eastman founder of Kodak committed suicide in Rochester New York. The 23rd of April saw the new Shakespeare Memorial Theatre opening in Stratford-upon-Avon. Designed by Elizabeth Scott it is the country's first important work by a woman architect. The 1st of August, Forrest Mars produces the first Mars bar in his Slough factory. Forrest Mars was the son of an American sweetmaker, Frank C. Mars, and he modelled the Mars bar after his father's Milky Way bar, which was already popular in the US, adjusting the recipe slightly to better suit European tastes, with his staff of 12 people. The bar and the proportions of the main components have changed over the years with minor variations. This version is sold worldwide except for the US, which has a different formula. And it's packaged in a distinctive black wrapper with red, gold edged lettering. By the way, 3 million Mars bars accompanied the British task force to the Falklands in 1982. On the 2nd of November, the EMU War happened, a nuisance wildlife management military operation which began in Australia. It ended in failure on the 10th of December of the same year. The 7th of November saw Buck Rogers in the 25th century, debuting on American radio. It's the first science fiction programme on radio. And lastly, the 25th of December, King George V delivers the first royal Christmas message on the BBC Empire Service from Sandringham House. The text had been written by Rudyard Kipling. Our event, though, happened on the 15th of August of that year in the seaside town of Portishead, which is a coastal town on the Severn Estuary, eight miles to the west of Bristol in the county of Somerset. As you can imagine, at the height of summer, everyone was out enjoying the sunshine, the candy floss, the donkey rides, and all the other fare that you can find at a UK beach. It was idyllic, and there was laughter everywhere. But unfortunately, for a group of three friends, this laughter wouldn't last very long. By the end of the day, everything would change. Word of the week. 
And this week I have the amazingly positive verb lionize, which you can use to talk about celebrities and important historical figures and the way people view them. Lionize means to treat someone as a hero. For example, the recent and sad passing of Bristol bus boycott campaigner Roy Hackett, who died at the age of 93. Now he's someone who should be lionised. They died trying to save their friends, like true English men and women. That's what the coroner said, praising the two victims of the Portishead triple bathing fatality, whose bodies at that point had not been found when the inquest was held on the 15th of August, 1932, on Miss Irene Lillian Watts Charge, known as Queenie, who lived at 35 Ellie Broad Street, St Paul's, Bristol. The evidence heard finally confirmed the belief firmly held by the mother of Reginald Henry Green, the young Birmingham man, that he actually swam to his death in a heroic attempt to help his companions. The witnesses who proved this story were Mr Gilbert Hibbs, a military medalist, and his friend Mr Wilfred Gunter. The coroner for North Somerset, Mr W Burrow, held the inquest in the Albion Inn, Porter's Head, without a jury. Miss Violet Watts Chard, the dead girl's sister, was present, as were Mr and Mrs William George Weldon, the dead man's uncle, and Mr William and Alfred Carey, the brothers of Miss Nancy Carey of 59 Worrell Road, Clifton, whose body at that time was one of those that had not yet been discovered. The clerk, Mr J. Chaffrey Clyde, represented the Portishead Urban District Council, and Irene's body was identified by Mr Leonard Charles Fry of 233 Cheltenham Road, Bishopston, Bristol, a traveller who said the deceased girl was his fiancée and the adopted daughter of Mrs Helen Chard. Leonard told those present that Irene wasn't a strong swimmer and had never bathed at Portishead. Mr Gilbert Frederick Hibbs of 36 Tumar Hill, St George, Bristol, a vulcanizer, was next to give evidence. He said that about 10 minutes past 7 on Sunday, August the 7th, he and his friend, who had gone to Porter's Head with their wives, were paddling on the beach near Battery Point. The two girls and Mr Green came along, said Mr Hibbs, from the promenade. They were covered in mud when they got to us. The two girls went into the water during this time. Mr Green was taking off a pair of flannel trousers which were covering his bathing suit. He was bent down trying to wipe some of the mud off his legs and singing. And I can tell you the name of the song he was singing, Muddy Water. During this time, the two girls were standing about four yards away, waiting for him. Miss Carey cried out to him, Come on, Reg. And he shouted, Right ho, coming, and then went into the sea with them. My friend and I started to walk away towards Battery Point when I heard a cry for help. I said to my friend, there's one of them drowning out there, and rushed towards them, telling my friend to rush up to the promenade for help. It's my firm conviction that nobody knew what was happening, only our two selves, my friend, Mr Wilfred Gunter and myself. 
I rushed into the water, thinking I could help them by wading out because I was a non-swimmer. While standing there, I saw Miss Nancy Carey had gone down once, and the next time she came up, the other girl, Miss Watts Chard, the deceased, swam towards her, and they both got in difficulties. They both screamed, and Green, the deceased man, deliberately turned round and went to their aid. It's my firm conviction that he could have saved himself had he wanted to. Whilst in the witness box, Mr Hibbs continued with his story about what he witnessed that day. He said Mr Green had swum six or seven yards towards the struggling girls, but at about five or six yards away from them, he himself got into some trouble. Then he too cried for help and disappeared. After that, all three went down several times, and each time they came, they were going out further. When Mr Atwell came, I directed him while he made his brave attempt, but he was too late. In reply to the coroner's questions regarding the death of the two girls, Mr Hibbs said, It's my belief they drowned one another. They clung to one another. The light-haired girl was in difficulties first, and then the deceased went towards her. They went down together. When they came up, they were 20 or 30 yards further off. They came up three or four times together. When he came up, Mr Green again shouted, but he was always further out. The coroner asked Mr Hibbs, When you say Mr Green could have saved himself, you mean? I mean, sir, had he not gone towards them, he died trying to make an attempt to save his friends. And the deceased? Yes, I think if she had left her friend, she could have saved herself as well. That is, if she'd not gone to Miss Carey, because she was not in difficulties at first. The only cries for help which were heard on Battery Point were those of Mr Hibbs' friend, Mr Gunter. When Mr Hibbs was asked by Mr Chaffrey if there was any warning signs, Hibbs said there was nothing at that point to say there was a strong current at the spot. And the only other people around at the time were four little toddlers who were running up and down the beach. That was why he thought he was the only actual eyewitness of everything that happened. Mr Green asked the coroner to record a point mentioned by the witness that the rope on the lifebuoy taken by Clifford Parsons, a brave man who went to try and help them, was so short that he had to actually let go of it while he swam out to sea, eventually being picked up by a boat when he got into trouble. Answering a question from Green, Mr Hibbs said that his son tried to help the girls himself and got into difficulties while still swimming out to them. He too failed. Mr Weldon, the dead man's uncle, further questioned the witness and firmly established that the dead man was swimming quite safely in calm water when he heard their cries and tried to reach the girls. Mr Wilfred Lewis Gunter, Mr Hibbs' friend, said he would like to give evidence to corroborate Mr Hibbs. Mr Gunter said he lived at the same address as Mr Hibbs. The coroner asked, You have heard Mr Hibbs' evidence. 
Do you agree with it or not? Gunter replied that he did agree with every single thing that had been said, saying that it was the truth and nothing but the truth. <laughs> Word on the street. Today we venture forth to Alma Road. This was named to commemorate the famous Battle of the Crimean War on the 20th of September 1854, which was fought by the River Alma. It was one of the more successful campaigns as far as the British were concerned. This road was built during the war on what had previously been a deer park. There's also an Alma Vale Road in BS8. The Crimean War is again the inspiration for this naming, and the Reverend Joseph Wayne formed a veteran society in Bristol in 1892 on this road, mainly for survivors of the Crimean War, but also of other wars prior to 1860. By 1905, only 96 members remained. It turns out Mr Gunter himself was not a swimmer, and the place where the three were bathing, he said, appeared safe some yards out, but after the tragedy, he and his friend could see the current, because two seagulls which pitched on the water were carried around Battery Point. In reply to questions by Mr William Carey, the witness said he did not think any of the three had done anything foolish in attempting to swim in what looked like an attractive bathing place. At this point, Reginald Green's father expressed his belief that if adequate danger notices had been put up at this spot, his son and the two girls would still be alive today. Dr John McCormick, who declared that the deceased died from drowning following inquiries from Mr William Carey, also said that he would expect Miss Carey's body to be recovered very soon. After further questioning by police sergeant, William Carey said he was satisfied everything possible was being done to recover his sister's body. Mr Frederick Hugh Smith, surveyor to the Portishead Urban District Council, was called at the request of Mr Chafery Glyde and gave detailed evidence at length regarding the complicated bylaws about bathing in Portishead. He said the tide coming in met another current near Battery Point and created a whirlpool, which was very dangerous to a strong swimmer at all times. The council then took steps to erect two notices on the beach. They said, it is dangerous to bathe from this beach. Mr Green then asked several questions of the surveyor, the replies to which proved, he said, that his son and the girls did nothing foolhardy when they went into the water. The nearest signage, said Mr Smith, was displayed at the other end of town, and certainly no one approaching from Battery Point would find any to signify there was a danger. What made things worse was that witnesses also agreed that the warning sign on Battery Point was so old that it was difficult to read and partly overgrown with ivy. This tragedy immediately got the local authorities putting up more obvious signage so that the warnings were more visible. 
It's worth noting that this was the second coroner's inquest. The first inquiry didn't have Mr Hibbs giving evidence, which led to a verdict of death by misadventure, something Mr Green's mother hugely objected to. She wanted it known that her son died trying to save his friends. The other notice, referring to the danger by the gully outlet, was 130 feet in an oblique direction from the shelter where the bathers left the promenade, and it would have been impossible for them to see it. The coroner, in his summing up, again expressed his sympathy to the bereaved relatives, as in the case of the late Mr Green. His verdict was accidental death and being sympathetic to the families at the end of the inquest, he said, The evidence of Mr Hibbs today shows that the deceased girl, as one would expect a girl to do as soon as she saw her fellow bather in trouble, went towards her and tried to help her, only to go down with her. Then, with regard to Mr Green, what we all expected. Although last time there was no direct evidence on the point which has been proved today, namely that Mr Green, as we would have expected a young healthy man to do, went to the assistance of his co-bathers and would have brought them ashore, if it had been within his powers to do so. His bravery has never been questioned at all, and anything I may have said was never meant to question it. I am quite satisfied that the three young people got into difficulties and did all they could for their fellow bathers. Even had they been better swimmers, it is quite possible they would have lost their lives. Mr Green, the dead man's father, then said he would like to thank, publicly, the hundreds of friends and other people who had written letters of sympathy and condolence. I would particularly like to thank the Western Daily Press and Bristol Mirror for the help, the very considerable help they have given me in this matter and in vindicating the bravery of my son. Just in, scientists have discovered what is believed to be the world's largest bedsheet. More on this story as it unfolds. Back in the day, facts. Let's start with the 10th of September 1897, when a 25-year-old London taxi driver named George Smith becomes the first person ever arrested for drunk driving after slamming his cab into a building. Smith later pleaded guilty and was fined 25 shillings. On the 11th of September 1297, the Battle of Stirling Bridge occurred, when Scottish rebel William Wallace defeated the English. The 12th of September 1981 saw The Smurfs animated cartoon series by Hanna-Barbera first broadcast in North America. And on the 13th of September 1916, Roald Dahl, author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James and the Giant Peach, was born in South Wales. Dahl wrote his first book, The Gremlins, for Walt Disney in 1943 and the story was later made into a film. Dahl's early life was marked with tragedy, but after school he travelled widely 
and joined expeditions to Newfoundland and later working in Tanzania. In World War II, he joined the Royal Air Force and became a fighter pilot, with missions in Libya, Greece and Syria. He suffered serious injuries when he was shot down in the Libyan desert. And, interestingly, he saved a piece of his femur removed in an operation after the accident and later used it as a paperweight in his office. On the 14th of September, 1812, one week after winning a victory over the Russian army at the Battle of Borodino, Napoleon Bonaparte's Grand Army enters the city of Moscow, only to find the population evacuated and the Russian army retreated again. Moscow was the goal of the invasion, but the deserted city held no officials to sue for peace. There was also no food or stores, nothing really, to reward the French soldiers for their long march. Then, just after midnight, fires broke out across the city. Apparently, these were set by Russian patriots, leaving Napoleon's massive army with no means to survive the coming Russian winter. And lastly, on the 15th of September 1914, the Allied and German forces begin digging the first trenches on the Western Front. It's said that day-to-day life in the trenches during World War I is described as horrific. The mud, the stench of rotting bodies, the enormous rats. But in reality, the trench system protected the soldiers from the worst effects of modern firepower used for the first time during this conflict. The greatest danger came during the periods when the war became more mobile, when the soldiers on either side were asked to leave the trenches and go on the offensive to gain more territory. Well, there you go. I'm afraid that means it's the end of the show for this week. But don't worry, I'll be here, same time, same place next week. Now it's time for me to thank those who really add that little bit extra to the show. The people who make me look good. And this week we have Steve Shepherd from our very own Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Steve Roberts and Julian Kendall from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. (laughs) 